Good morning, my friends. I'm glad to see you all this morning. We are here for Revelation chapter 4, and I'm excited. This is when the story really gets good. So before we begin, a little bit of housekeeping. I want to make sure you all know that we are getting close to the end of Advent, close to Christmas, and you are all invited to participate all the way through the next few weeks of this beautiful season. We are going to be having our children's nativity pageant live during our 9 a.m. service this coming Sunday. We hope you will join us for that. A week from Sunday, we really kick off the Christmas worship season. That evening on December 20th, we're gonna have our Christmas lessons and carol service, which is gorgeous. And then on December 23rd, we're going to be welcoming anyone who wants to come to the church campus in person to safely walk through our building, receive communion and a blessing, and even take a family Christmas portrait to do so. And that's going to be from 5 to 6.30. Then we've got four services on Christmas Eve, the 24th, and one on the morning of Christmas Day. None of those services have in-person attendance, but they're going to be really excellent online. And so we hope that you will join us for that worship. All this information can be seen on our website, stmichael.org Christmas. So don't miss it. It's going to be great. Now for Bible study, a quick reminder that I want you to be part of our email list so you get information as we have it for you. This week is the penultimate week of this fall semester. We've got one more study next week before we take a couple weeks off for the Christmas break. So visit the, our website, stmichael.org RBS, Rector's Bible Study, stmichael.org RBS. And then you can download the fall bookmark that will tell you this week is chapter four, next week is chapter five. Then we'll be back together on Epiphany to begin chapter six. And a new bookmark with the spring schedule should be loaded on the website this week. As we begin this Revelation story, right? Chapter four is, chapter four is starting to get into the interesting stuff. I need your participation. I need your help, your questions, your comments, your thoughts, because Revelation can just be a little, you know, nuts. And if you don't give me some thoughts or questions, it's just not going to be quite as good as it could be. So on our social media platforms, Facebook and YouTube, I want you to do a couple things. Say hi to your friends. Um, make sure that you introduce yourself if you are new. And... Give me some feedback because the imagery and the metaphors and the allegories and all the other stuff that we're going to be getting into in Revelation that really kicks off with chapter four are the kinds of things that needs participation. And so if you've got some questions from last week or maybe you read ahead chapter four, then let us know. Submit those questions, make those comments in the comment fields. And if you're watching via our St. Michael website, then feel free to email Meredith Rose even right now during class because she's going to let me know as those thoughts, comments, questions come in so we can help guide this lesson. And of course, if you're watching this on demand, then email Meredith or make your comments in the comment thread, even if it's not live. And we'll track all those during the week so that next week I'll have those questions ready for class time. Let's start with a prayer, and we'll get rolling with chapter 4. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this beautiful day and for this holy season of Advent, and we ask that you bless us with your presence. Fill us with your Spirit. Help us to know that we are following the true Creator of all things. God, we ask that especially in this time when infection rates are high, hospitalization rates are high, we all know people who are struggling with illness and even some near death, those who have lost loved ones most recently. Be present to all of them. Help to lift up your servants on the front lines who are caring for those most vulnerable, that they find inspiration in you to help meet the needs of all those they encounter. And today, Lord, we use the text coming from chapter 4 as we sing your praises. Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Our prayers come to you, O Lord, in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, gang, here we go. Chapter 4. Revelation. Let's talk for a second about how we got here. So 
Chapter 1, introduction, John is there in prison. He receives this vision. All of a sudden, Jesus is standing right before him, and Jesus says, I've got something to tell you. And the preamble, really, to chapter 4 is found in chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches in Asia. These are churches John almost certainly knows, probably knows personally. Perhaps he helped to either create these churches or to sustain these churches as their pastor. And so these seven letters to the seven churches in Asia all hit a general idea. They point to a facet of Christ that John is seeing in this revelation. They promise a glorious aspect of heaven in the future, some kind of reward if they overcome the struggles and the troubles of their earthly existence. And all of that tees up the real powerful vision that begins right here in chapter four. There are really only two sections in chapter four. We're gonna see the throne room And then we're going to talk about the worship and praise of God. Those are really the only two sections today. We don't have a lot of verses. And so today's lesson isn't going to be quite as long as normal, um, which is one of the reasons why we have a little bit of extra time, if you've got some questions or thoughts, to begin to parse out really what's going on in Revelation. So let's jump right in. Chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read together. After this, I, John, looked, and there in heaven a door stood open, And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones are twenty-four elders, dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. We'll pause there. We get this incredible scene, this vision that John has, and we need to begin to take this apart. Now, John has been taken somewhere, right? John says he is taken somewhere that is beyond our reality, right? So we don't see what John is seeing, and John is being taken in some way to view this bigger reality, this heaven reality. And this vision is more, it seems, than just what he is seeing. There seems to be a genuine experience here that John is having with this vision, which means we need to stop and pause and consider what might actually be happening here. Now, ultimately, there are two basic ways that we understand this entire vision. We can understand this entire vision metaphorically, and we can understand this entire vision literally. Let's just kind of offer some thoughts about both ways of understanding this vision. Verse 1, we see, or we read, that John sees a heaven, a door to heaven standing open. All right, so John is seeing this door to heaven. Then John goes there. Okay, So if this is metaphorical, let's start with the metaphorical reason. Obviously, this can be understood as something not literal, something metaphorical, a truth that John is experiencing. And what I want to say very clearly is, if we interpret this metaphorically, which effectively means John's having this vision like a dream sort of thing, right? So John's physically where he is, in prison, on Patmos, and John's vision is a bit more like a dream, a revelation, an idea, something that comes to him really in his mind and in his spirit rather than being physically taken somewhere. If we interpret this metaphorically, like a dream, it does not make it less true. So I'll say that differently. There is plenty about the Bible that is fantastic and In that fantastic storytelling, there is deep truth about God's reality. Understanding those deep truths, metaphorically, does not make them less true. In our modern sensibility, we do have this idea of unless a thing physically happens, or we might say literally happens, then it is not quite as true as something that we can't actually touch. 
That sort of modern sensibility is just a little shallow, if I might say. Um, there are things that we experience in our lives. I mean, think about something like love, right? You can't touch it, but it is absolutely true. God, we can't touch, but God is true. And so understanding the truth about something that is not physical or physically literal still makes it true. And so a metaphorical understanding of this story is absolutely fine. It means that you can still be faithful, still believe it's true, all of that is just fine. This idea of a metaphorical reading is probably where a lot of Episcopalians land. But it's not the only option. There are plenty of people, plenty of good faithful Christian people and Episcopalians who really do read this literally. That John is sitting in his cell, a door opens, and he literally leaves. He actually goes physically somewhere. If you opt for a literal reading of Revelation, then a few things to consider. Where does John physically go? How far away does, God, does John physically go? Many people interpret this, or if you see this in art, you often see it as some kind of like sky door, like really far away, and he's sort of lifted into this. I actually like, if we're gonna go literally, I sort of like that John almost right next to him sees something open up, right? I mean, we've all seen enough sci-fi at this point to know that there could be sort of this, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to call it, like a wormhole or something, where you almost just take one step and you've transitioned into some other place. And I guess we can literally go with that. Uh, it's, you know, this is one of those moments where I want to say to you, I don't doubt God's ability or capacity to do anything. So I may lean a bit more to the truth in the metaphor, but hey, you know, if, some, if at some point I find out that John was literally taken somewhere, like walked through a doorway, went into the heavenly throne room and saw all this in real life, okay, that's fine with me. I don't doubt God. And so a literal reading of this might mean that there is an acknowledgement of almost a separate plane of reality that exists right next to ours that we just can't sense or see. It's a thin place, so to speak. And we see this kind of language used with a lot of um, Christian mystics over time, where Christian mystics seem to almost pull this thin veil away from actually what they see right in front of them and are able to pass into a physical reality that is unlike the earthly reality that we all live in. I, I, there, is a, um, there is no way I can do this justice right now in this Bible study. And so I think I'll just simply pause and say metaphorical, literal. The point of either is that we have received this story in our biblical canon because people have understood its power to influence our discipleship in such a good way that it is incumbent upon us to take this story with all of the truth that it deserves so that we can imagine and understand and follow God in a deeper way in our own discipleship. That's really the point. So metaphorically, literally, take your pick or find something in between, but don't ever get to a point where you are thinking that the truth of this story is somehow lost because the truth of this story is what's most important. Okay, John sees, goes to, experiences, whatever you wanna say, this throne room of God. So let's continue with verses five and six to actually see what John is seeing. And a reminder, give me some thoughts, questions, comments, feedback, so that we can help direct this study. Verse five. 
Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne, there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. So when we get to verses five and six, we begin to see some numbers, that numerology that I spoke about in both Daniel and now in Revelation matter. Numbers matter. We see the importance of numbers as this heavenly throne is being described. And there are good numbers, holy numbers, heavenly numbers, and there are evil numbers, hellish numbers. So in chapter four, we really do have a series of some holy, heavenly numbers. We get 12s in 24, so there are 24 thrones, 24 elders. Effectively, we're talking about two groups of 12, and 12 is certainly a holy number. For many scholars, they believe that this really represents the two most important groups of 12, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Jesus. So in effect, in this heavenly throne room, we see represented these two groups of 12s, 12 and 12 thrones and elders. Around the throne, we see a few groups of sevens. We see seven flaming torches that represent the seven spirits of God. These follow the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia, right? So we are creating now a, a link of important numbers. And these holy numbers, all of these sevens, and now we get these pairs of twelves, are really meant to elicit a high level of trust in the goodness of what John is seeing. It is less important that John literally saw these things, and much more important as a story that what John's really communicating in this vision is that he's experiencing something very holy. He's got sevens all around him and twelves all around him. Those two very holy numbers indicate that he's experiencing some very holy place. There is God on the throne surrounded by these very holy ideas. So the other important thing that we see both in, in really the first six verses of this chapter, this is heaven now. Heaven is in a particular place in time. And that's a very interesting concept. We might think of, or maybe we might think of this, but we may kind of absentmindedly or subconsciously kind of think that heaven is this constantly good, perfect place, that we exist on the earth and we're going about the earth doing our thing in this imperfection and in this mess. And heaven is all the time constantly in a state of perfection. And we're trying to reach that state of perfection. And what we find here in this vision of Revelation is a very nuanced but important distinction. John sees a heaven that is not yet the fully perfected version of the new creation that we will see at the end of the Revelation story. In this throne room, we see something that is not quite everything it could be. And that is summed up in this sea of glass, okay? So if we look at verse six, what John sees in front of the throne is like a sea of glass, like crystal. There is some kind of water contained here, some sea, ocean, that is there in front of the throne. Now, let's take a minute to discuss what this sea, this water really could be. Now, we know that seas are, in antiquity, not good things, all right? Rarely does good come out of the ocean. The ocean is uncertain and dangerous. The ocean is a place where people take risks. And I'm talking literal risks, right? At this point in time, 2,000 years ago, to get on a boat and go sailing in the ocean was risky. 
Now, we know even today, getting on a boat and sailing out in the ocean is not a sure thing. There's a risk involved. But 2,000 years ago, and even before then, it was way more risky. Boats were not quite as strong as they are today. Um, they certainly don't have GPS. You don't have radios. You don't have any ability to get help if you're too far away from land or from people who know you. So the ocean itself is this dark and scary place. And we see that in ancient mythology. Pick any mythological tradition and almost certainly you see very clearly bad stuff happens in the ocean. We see the same thing in our biblical history. Remember back to Daniel. What comes out of the ocean but those great beasts that emerge from the ocean that are gnarly and scary? Then in Revelation, what we're going to see in both chapters 12 and 13, the dragon goes down to the ocean and waits for the great beast to emerge from the ocean in this cosmic battle against good. The ocean is really what bears out all of the scary stuff of the world. Now, the ocean is also something that God can overcome. Think about the sea in our biblical story. The great moment of the seas might be either in the story of Noah or in the story of the Israelites fleeing Egypt. In the story of Noah, we get the sea is this dangerous, scary thing that wipes out all life, except what does God do? God overcomes the water. God overcomes the sea and saves what is good on the earth. Likewise, when Moses is leading the Israelites out of Egypt, they get to the Red Sea, which seems as if it is the end of the line for the Israelites. Remember, the Pharaoh and his chariots are charging to the Israelites who are on the shore of the Red Sea. But then what does God do? God parts the waters, and we see this incredible image of the Israelites walking across dry land to safety. And then, of course, the waters come crashing back down on top of the chariots, killing all of Pharaoh's army. So the sea, although scary and uncertain and dangerous, is also something that God has proven he can overcome. So here we have in this throne room a bowl of glass, a sea like crystal. And what we see in chapter 21 of Revelation is that the sea is gone. Remember the big arc of Revelation is bringing about the new creation. The very beginning of Genesis is the first creation. And the very end of Revelation is the new creation. And what we see in these two bookends is God's perfect order in the whole world, which is why the Bible begins with creation and the Bible ends with new creation. Right here, we see this implication, this indication that the new creation is coming, but not yet. And it's represented here in this controlled, contained sea right in front of the throne room. And in chapter 21, we see that the new heaven and the new earth become reality and the sea was no more. So we're not quite there yet. And it's a pretty significant and profound understanding of heaven that it's not this constant state of perfection. God is present. God is at work. The people, the creatures that surround God are also at work. But we've not quite reached the perfection we believe heaven to be just yet. All right, so that's the end of the first section, and I see we've had a few comments or questions. Give me one second. I'm going to look at them. Oh, good one. Um, <laughs> okay, so this is good. Uh, Howard and Shelley both are kind of getting at a, a general idea around um, revelation and interpretation and literalism and all of that good stuff. So, Howard asks, um, why are there no revelations in modern times, or are there some that just haven't been acknowledged? Okay, so good question. We'll get to that. And Shelley asks a very complimentary question. Um, if people take this literally, they must be disappointed that none of the prophecies are fulfilled. Okay, so let's grab those two. 
God is revealing truth to us now. As Anglican Christians, we base everything that we do as followers of Christ on a very important idea that God's not done with us. God's not done with the world. God is continuing to reveal truth to us through our own faithfulness. This is critically important for Anglican Christians. And by that I mean Episcopalians because that is one of the most important, if not the most important, differentiating theological idea from most Protestants and certainly Orthodox and Catholic Christians. <sighs> How do I do this in just a minute or two? Um, there are four major branches of Christianity, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, Anglican. Anglicans, Episcopalians, are not Protestant. There were two concurrent reformations happening in the European continent. One was happening in continental Europe, and one was happening in Britain. One of the reasons they didn't kind of happen together is because it was difficult for the reformers, who were really outside the power structure, to communicate with each other across the English Channel. That's really what it came down to. And so these two threads of reformed ideas, they went in two different directions. And the divergence really happened because there was not a lot of political will for reformation until we had some monarchs get behind it. So one of the common misunderstandings is that Henry VIII created the Anglican Church because he wanted to annul his marriage. Okay. It is important to note that Henry VIII's desire to annul the marriage that was declined by the Pope gave the theologians the political will to change the church. Henry VIII was a papist. I mean, he was a... He was, I know it sounds strange, but he was in his own way a very faithful Catholic, which is one of the reasons why he worked so hard to get his marriage annulled by the Pope. He believed that the Pope was a good authority, that he should have deference to that office. And so he tried over and over again to, I know this sounds weird, but to separate, get rid of his wife, in the proper Catholic way. It didn't work out that way. Henry got mad. And the theologians in England who had been working on these reformed ideas for a couple hundred years saw an opening. And so they provided a way for Henry to break from the Roman Catholic Church anchored in Rome and do something different in England. Henry didn't do it but Henry allowed it to be done. Does that make sense? At the same time, basically, you had other reformers, primarily in kind of northern Europe, norther, farther north than perhaps the most cultured regions. Um, you know, at the time, if you think back to what would have been the old Roman Empire, you're really talking about southern Europe around the Mediterranean. When you get north, into places like northern France, Germany, Switzerland, those areas, they weren't ever really part of the Roman Empire, not really. And fast forward to the end of the Middle Ages, you know, around 1500 or so, those northern European areas were beginning to grow. They were getting stronger and more economically impactful. And as they did that, one of the ways to differentiate themselves from kind of the old Roman Empire would be to create a new way of being Christian. Those reformers, Martin Luther over at Zwingli in Switzerland and John Calvin in France, you had those reformers doing something a little different than what was going on in England. One of the big ways that those traditions differ is the sense that God's still at work. We see that in our Anglican tradition manifested very regularly, um, although thoughtfully and prayerfully. For example, can women be ordained? We say yes, but we didn't say yes because we somehow thought 
that we were unfair or unbalanced, anything like that? We said yes, because there were women who felt called. And those women, in their faithfulness, spoke up to the authorities, who at the time were all men, and said, God is doing something in us. We are very faithful people, and God is at work in us, and God is calling us to this particular way of expressing our faithfulness. And we as a tradition should not shut that down. And so in that kind of faithful moment, the church, men and women, began to prayerfully consider whether God was doing something new. And the answer was yes, God is doing something new. Now, really, God probably been doing it the whole time, but it just takes a while for us to listen. And so that kind of revelation may not look as fantastic as what John is doing here in prison in Patmos, but it is a revelation nonetheless. We are faithfully saying that God is revealing to us a new, better way of being, something closer and closer that looks like the kingdom. And every time we take one of those steps that becomes a bit more inclusive of everybody, we look more and more like the vision of heaven that God is giving us. And that really is a modern revelation. Now, Shelley gets at a complimentary idea here. If revelation is taken literally, then it necessarily means that faithful people are looking to see, okay, hold on. What I need to say is, if you take Revelation literally and predictively, so if you understand Revelation as being both a literal journey, physical journey that John goes on, and also something that is predicting the future, put those things together, and then you get some of the traditions that we know Seventh-day Adventists and others, where there is this sense of revelation is a literal prediction of what will happen in the future. And so we, as people of faith, are meant to keep our eyes open and our wits about us and to identify when there are things happening in the world that seem to indicate that revelation is now coming true. We, as Anglicans read Revelation as something that is already true. If you take a literal predictive reading of Revelation, what you're actually doing is waiting for Revelation to come true. That's very different. And of course, we can, I mean, we can point to dozens and dozens of high-profile moments when groups thought something was happening that all the stars were aligning, literally, in order to predict what Revelation had shown John, and we need to get ready. And unfortunately, people follow that lead, and in the most tragic circumstances, we've seen groups of good people follow leaders who were looking for the moments when Revelation was going to come true, and even take their lives as part of that process of bringing about the truth of Revelation. And that's, that's a tragedy. Um, sometimes groups don't go quite that far, and there's a moment when that thing is supposed to happen, and then that thing doesn't happen, and then a lot of the people who were part of the group say, wait a minute, why didn't that happen? And the leader doesn't really have a good answer, and so they kind of fall apart. Um, I think it's possible to understand John's experience as something literal, physical, and also not understand Revelation as something predictive. That's sort of the needle I was threading when I was talking about a literal understanding of Revelation, because although I, I don't often take a very hard stand on something, I am very clear and take a hard stand that Revelation is not predicting the future. That is not what this is. This is not fortune telling, all right? That is not what's happening in Revelation. But a literal physical experience of John in that moment to reveal this really profound deep truth 
I mean, that's okay with me. I, in a personal way, I don't really land there. Um, I think that what John's understanding is a, a truth about Christ, God's relationship with Christ, God's relationship to humanity through Christ and the way that we are to live in the world and on and on and on. I think that it's much more like a dream vision than a literal John was physically taken somewhere. But I am very clear that this is not some kind of fortune telling that calls us to be looking around the world and seeing indications that maybe Revelation is going to come true now. No, no. Revelation is true. There is truth in this story that can impact us in real deep ways, and that's what we're looking to do right now. We're not looking to learn Revelation right now so that we can then know when it's about to come true. No. We are looking for that deep truth to inform us and transform us into disciples of Jesus right now. All right. Thank you. That was very helpful, and I hope that that helps some others too. Um, Again, love that. Questions, comments? Keep coming. We're going to shift into the second part of chapter four while more comments may come. And we're going to go, we're going to start with the second half of verse six. So in biblical studies, we're looking at verse 6b. We're going to start there. Ready? Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We'll pause there. Let's talk about the creatures. Okay, so we see creatures throughout the Bible doing all kinds of things, right? Specifically, if we look at these creatures, they hearken back to the creatures that we saw in Daniel. We also see creatures around God in both Isaiah and Ezekiel that kind of look like these creatures. Not exactly, they're really different. Um, But there is this sense that God has creatures around him. And this is not something that is happening only in Revelation. This is multiple times in the Old Testament. There are visions, like Isaiah's visions of God's throne, where we see God surrounded by kind of naturally inspired creatures, right? I mean, we get here lion, ox, eagle, right? But we also get, in a very interesting way, human, okay? Did you note that? There are four creatures, one of which is human. When we see this vision in Revelation of four creatures, we, ah, I will say we are meant to understand, and most scholars think this is the point, we are meant to understand all of creation. And so what happens here is we see effectively the kind of like kings of the created order. So we see the lion, right, king of the beasts. We see the ox, the strong, big, powerful king of domestic animals. We see the eagle, the king of the flying animals. And then, of course, we see human, king of creation. And so in this moment, in these four creatures, we see kind of the apex of the creation itself. That's important to note because... Part of what we see in the second half of chapter 4 is a very clear acknowledgement that God's anchor identity, God's actual, hmm, what do I want to say? The praise of God and our call to praise God is explicitly anchored in God's identity as creator. So God's not just praised because God is God. God is praised because God is creator of everything. That's really important for us to understand. Now, as a side note, we're going to look at a little bit more about that in just one moment. As a side note, what we get here with the human lion ox eagle is what we 
have traditionally classically linked to the four gospels. So if you've ever seen the four gospels represented, Matthew as the human, Mark as the lion, Luke as the ox, John as the eagle, what you see, if you've ever looked closely at the um, gold, silver kind of cover to a gospel book, like what we process at St. Michael, that big silver gospel book where the deacon reads the gospel, on the cover of that book, and you will see this in plenty other iconography, are these four creatures that comes from right here in chapter four of Revelation linked to the four canonical gospels. Now what's interesting about this is at the time Revelation is being written, there are plenty more than four gospels. I think we've talked about this before, but there are dozens of gospels that were written, but there are only four that become canonical, four that become uh, part of our biblical canon. Those four Gospels become canonical because they are meant to represent a particular facet of Jesus' life that people found important to their own discipleship. Put in other words, over time, certain Gospels were read most often. It's kind of like if you think about all the great books that have been written, we all tend to find some deeper truth in a handful of certain books that become our favorites or become very much um, influential and formative to us. In that same sense, as people shared the story of Jesus, they shared particularly these four stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Other gospels are also stories of Jesus. They simply didn't become as important to most Christians throughout the first hundreds and hundreds of years of Christianity. By the time we get the biblical canon defined as we know it, which is, by the way, more than a thousand years after Jesus' life, these four Gospels have become the authoritative Gospels. When these creatures are identified in Revelation, there is nothing explicit about them being the four Gospels. But when John looks into this heavenly throne room and sees the seven flames and the seven spirits and the 24 elders and thrones and crowns and all the other stuff, these four creatures are there praising God. We're going to get to that. And I think early Christians said, what are these four creatures? And people looked around and said, oh, these four gospels, might these be like the four creatures, and then they tied the evangelists who wrote the Gospels with these four creatures. And so whenever you see that linked, you can remember it comes right here from Revelation 4. Okay, let's continue and finish this chapter. We're going to look at verses 9, 10, and 11, and then we're going to talk about praising God here in this throne room. Let's turn to verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Okay. One of the defining characteristics of Revelation is its poetry, is its songs of praise. We see these songs intermittently throughout all of the Bible, really, but Revelation has some beautiful poetry as a part of it, and we see some of that right here in chapter 4. We see this verse in chapter 4, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, you might think to yourself, I, I, I know I know that. Where have I heard that? When we say the Sanctus in our Eucharistic prayer every Sunday, it is very similar to what we see here in this holy, 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 right? Sanctus, holy, holy, holy. It's a little different for us Episcopalians. We, we actually get our Sanctus from Isaiah 6. But there are other traditions, and most, most specifically, the old Latin rite of the Catholic Church 
actually uses this verse from Revelation 4. They don't now. When it became English in Vatican II and then it changed again, it's not exactly this. But the old Latin rite, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It is literally lifted right out of Revelation and becomes part of our Eucharistic prayer. And why? Because put yourself in this vision. John is here seeing the throne room and John sees these creatures worshiping God. John sees these 12 elders robed in white wearing crowns, casting their crowns down in front of the throne and in doing so praising God. These songs of praise are critically important because it creates for us a model of what we are to do. Now you've probably heard plenty of people say over time that we as humans are made to worship God. We are biologically set to try and sense some divine. And we've seen this over time. I mean, decades of research has shown that our brains shift and change physically the way that the, elect, uh, the electrical signals work in our brains when we are in deep, deep prayer and meditation actually shift. This has been shown in multiple studies when people look at monks of all traditions, not just Christian traditions, that when that prayer and that meditation gets real deep, the brain physically begins to shift and activate all over. We are created to worship and to praise God. And it's not just us. We are part of the creation that is created to praise and worship God. That's the deep truth here in chapter four. We see this beauty of all creation that are really looking to worship God. Now, what is interesting about this is the ancient idea that all things come from God, good and bad, everything pours out from God. This is a little harder for us in our modern sensibility to grasp because we are more disconnected to the natural world than humans have been for most of history. Most of us, very few of us, actually grow the food we eat right? Very few of us are day-to-day -day dependent on the creation, the world around us, in a vulnerable way. We don't wonder if we're going to have clean water today. We don't wonder where our food is going to come from. We know, perhaps, that our food comes from the earth, but my God, it's so processed now and it's so industrialized now that we've begun to create in us an identity that is not dependent on creation day to day. And yet if we are honest, we are extremely highly dependent on creation. No matter how fancy we get with however much technology we have, we still have to drink water clean water, preferably. We still have to eat food, food that is grown at some point from the earth. We are a whole lot more vulnerable than we like to admit. We are very dependent on the creation in order for us to survive. Now, in this moment, where the creation seems to be praising God simply because God is creator, I think we get a chance to consider whether or not we simply, by virtue of being alive, should actually be praising God more and more. We hear the creatures and elders saying, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. See, God is worthy to be praised because God created all things. Not just being God, but when we look around, look outside, look at one another, God's worthy of praise because we are here. And that's 
that's a very profound, deep truth that's good for all of us. So my friends, that is effectively chapter four. Um, there's a number of uh, ideas that we can actually uh, kind of better represent um, and we can go deeper, but I kind of keep it at a relatively, you know, higher level. Um, and it looks like I've got one more question. Um, why is God described as Jasper and Carnelian? <laughs> um, okay. So Jasper and Carnelian are specific, I should say, Carnelian is onyx. Um, and Jasper is another type of precious jewel or gem. Um, both onyx and jasper and then emerald, right, in that same verse, are meant to represent God as, it doesn't have anything to do with the actual colors or the actual gems. You're talking about God is spectacular. God is shimmery. I mean, God's like glitter and sparkles and shiny and reflective. And in a sense, God is almost hard to look at. Um, when I read that verse and I think of, imagine a, a person, a, uh, like a statue, maybe, um, a large statue that is made completely of fine, polished, cut gemstones in the sun would be nearly impossible to look at, right? I mean, it'd be kind of like this and every, every direction you moved, it would shimmer with such spectacular reflection of light that it would be difficult to look. And that kind of sounds right for God, don't you think? It kind of sounds as if God is hard to look upon. That in itself is very consistent with what we see from God throughout Scripture. Go back to Moses on the mountain, right? Moses on the mountain sees God and is so spectacularly blinded by God, he himself turns white and glows. And when he comes down the mountain, having been with God, the people have trouble looking upon Moses as a person who has seen God, let alone seeing God himself. And so I think it's less about the Jasper, Onyx, Emerald kind of stuff, and more about the spectacularly unnatural way that God reflects the light of the world. That makes sense. Um, all right, so we're about five minutes early. Um, I think we're good for the day. A reminder that we have one more week. We'll be looking at chapter five next week, and then we will be off for a couple weeks back in January. Meredith is going to send an email out to all of you who are on our email list. If you are not, please do email Meredith Rose. Um, she'll likely put her email address in the comment fields, or you can visit stmichael.org RBS, Rector's Bible Study, where you can email Meredith, get on our email list, and make sure you don't miss the study as we begin again in January. And like I said, the new schedule will be posted this week on the RBS website of the St. Michael site. So you can see our schedule and know which chapters we are going to be reading. And please do check out stmichael.org slash Christmas. Um, I'll add that, or Meredith, please add that in the comment thread down below so that people can see what we've got offered here at Christmas. Nativity pageant this Sunday. Christmas Lessons and Carols a week from Sunday, and then we've got great stuff here the 23rd, 4th, and 5th. Don't miss it. Hope you all have a wonderful week. God bless you all, and I will see you here again next Wednesday.